Buddies! Hey, welcome back. It's Concert Buddy. Thanks for taking some time to check out this episode of Vinyl Community Podcasts on the podcast channel. Or if you're on YouTube watching me on my Concert Buddy channel, thank you very much. What you're about to experience coming up is a wonderful conversation I had with one of the elder statesmen of the vinyl community on YouTube. And he's not one of the OGs. He didn't start this 10, 15 years ago like some other folks. But I'd like to think of Norman Maslov, or Mazzy, if you know him well, as like the connective tissue of the vinyl community. Because if it's a new channel, if it's an older channel, if it's a big channel or it's a little channel, most folks in the vinyl community on YouTube are at least familiar with Mazzy. And I think that's a testament to not only what he produces on his channel, but how he conducts himself and, and really engages with other folks within the community, not just on YouTube, but to me, again, the vinyl community extends well beyond the walls or the screens of YouTube. All that said, I recently was up in Seattle, his neck of the woods, and he was kind enough to invite my family and I into his home. So I got to actually see the shrine, the mausoleum of Maslov, his own record collection. It's a lifetime. It's a testament to his passion, enthusiasm for music. I didn't get to spend as much time poking through the racks as I probably would have otherwise, but still extremely thankful for Mazzy, not just for the conversation you're about to listen to here shortly, but also his graciousness and his hospitality while we're in Seattle. So thank you, Mazzy, for that. Anyway, in this conversation, I kind of ask him about his experience on YouTube, what draw drew him, draw, what drew him to YouTube and start making videos and sharing his different stories and tales through that medium. But also, you know, one thing he said while I was up in Seattle that really stuck with me is talking about what happens to our collections when we leave the celestial plane. And, you know, what if our, our offspring are not exactly as passionate about our hobby as we are? So anyway, we get into that as well. And then we ended up with a couple fun rapid-fire questions. Enough. Jibba. Jabba. You came here for the goods. Here we go. And you thought vinyl left. You're listening to the Vinyl Community Podcasts. Everything vinyl. Welcome in to another episode of Vinyl Community Podcasts. This is Concert Buddy. Thanks for joining us. I am joined today by one of my favorites, probably one of your favorites in the vinyl community. That's the one and the only Norman Masloff. How are you doing today, Mazzy? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for and having me. Thanks for visiting Seattle a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say long time no see, but you know, it's only been, what, two weeks. So again, yeah, thank you, you for your hospitality. You entered my uh, record room domain, my the record library, the it's like the Xanadu here in Seattle. <laughs> well, I noticed that right after I left, but a few days later, uh, Tim from University of Vinyl came through, and you better start charging admission. I, I, I feel like I know I'm ready to do a, like a, a Airbnb hybrid of people into vinyl that can stay for a shitload of money. Oh, can I say that? Sorry, you can. Uh, and I'll and I'll drive them around doing the tour sites. We'll go to the Hen Jimi Hendrix grave site. We'll go uh, to the clubs uh, from Singles, the movie, the Seattle movie Singles. You can see where uh, Kurt Cobain, uh, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, where he his demise and some of the clubs that uh, you know the whole grunge scene, West Seattle, uh, where several of Pearl Jam members live, and uh, and uh, the uh, Easy Street Record Store with the cafe and all the record. We have like fifteen plus record stores here. 
It's fantastic. Yeah, we hit we hit a good percentage of them, and even some you recommended. So I appreciate it. Royal Records was one that was a big win after we. Yeah, left. my adopted city. It's not my old San Francisco, but San Francisco is not my old San Francisco either. So there we go. True story. Well, let's kind of get into it. Um, you know, the theme for these kind of conversations, I call it "Mind of the Record Collector," and we'll touch on some certain points that kind of hit that, but to kind of launch into the conversation where I got to know you and where a lot of people probably got to know you as well, or some who may be new to you, uh, is your, your operation, your content that you put out on YouTube. How did that start? And, and what was the motivation to just start talking about records and music on YouTube? Well, a segment of my, uh, I have like some people, but I have several playlists. So if you go to my channel, Norman Maslov, it's actually just under Norman Maslov. Uh, there are playlists like featured artists. There's a jazz playlist. There's obviously I'm a Beatle collector, but I'm not a Beatle channel, all Beatle in. Uh, but also have a series that kind of accidentally started called, um, well, there's Whack-A-Mole, the random picks. And I didn't obviously invent random picks, but I just used a Whack-A-Mole as a branding and it kind of caught on. Sure. You know. But uh, Memories of a Vinyl Junkie is very autobiographical, and I talk about myself. And so if you're on YouTube, you got to have an ego to begin with. But I have a history because I literally was born and grew up in San Francisco. To my point of view, the right time, the right place. Sure. Into the 60s, I saw the airplane and the dead and the psychedelic and the Winterland shows and all the concerts we can get into later, some of them I saw. But in terms of YouTube, I would go on YouTube, and I there was a German guy um who's not doesn't do not michael 45 but he doesn't do uh youtube videos anymore vinyl community but he used to do kind of jazz things and i started seeing his videos and uh, i fo started following it and then he stopped doing videos but other ones popped up and after a while I decided to do a video so i came downstairs in this room my record library uh, those some of you are watching it some are just listening so if you the youtube version you can see the visual of it mm -hmm. uh and I just did an introduction where I am at. I think I did one or two videos, and then I just got busy. I'm self-employed as a photo agent, and I've been bu I got busy. And I didn't do a, a second or third one until a year later. Oh, yeah. And uh, then I just got into it, and I just got sort of addicted. I liked showcasing my collection. I, mean, I had this great collection, and of course. We all have those of us who have these good collections. You want to share them. I at least I want to share them. Sure. I love when people come over. We can play records, but you only can you know have so many people come over and play records. So sharing this collection I've amassed, having been in the record business for about a decade, from the early seventies to the early eighties, and then collecting beyond, um, and also my San Francisco stories, just became a great thing. So I got into it, and I got addicted. And I remember I was making. I started making a ton of videos in a short amount of time. And I remember there was a video by one of my favorite uh, YouTube people, Vinyl Richie. I love Vinyl Richie. He's got, he's, you know, he's not just the punk guy that people think he is in, in that side, he, but I you know he's got a no holes barred, whatever I'm going to say attitude, but I I really like him. We become, I think, virtual vinyl community friends. And he mentioned, Oh, this Mazzy guy, Mazzy guy. He makes too many videos. You know, they come to make <laughs> videos and they peter out and they don't make videos anymore. And I kind of remembered that, but I kept making videos and it just kind of grew and it, and it grew from there. And then people apparently like it. 
Some people. Some people do. And I, I think you've amassed a, a loyal following. If anything, I think your sub counts over 20,000, 25, 26, I think last time I looked About at 26. it. So, so there oh, are people yeah. out there. Do you think, um, well, part of it is obviously your storytelling, your subject matter expertise. But, you know, during COVID, I think a lot of people were looking for stuff to do. And I think as, a, as somebody making videos, it was probably an outlet for you, but also a lot of people were connecting through the videos, commenting, making videos, response videos, all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, the lockdown thing was, I think for all of us, uh, it was something for us to do. And I really dived in big time. My business kind of literally stopped. My business, I, I'm a photo agent and photo productions stopped. It's not like, yeah, I can work at home and I do work at home. But the productions to go out to do a food shoot or a lifestyle shoot, you couldn't get people together. So it stopped. Mm -hmm. And this was something I was able to jump into even more. And it did grow. Um, but the, the, the irony is I don't, I don't do clickbait headlines or titles for the sake of clickbait titles. However, because of a situation, I did a video and it was uh, titled, When Did Eric Clapton Become a Wanker? It was because of a result of uh, a woman in Germany, I believe, sold a Eric Clapton bootleg. It was from a CD that her husband had and he had died like eight years earlier. She put it online and tried to sell it and the lawyers reached out to her. And now maybe she should have pulled it, but she didn't. She got a little. Season you know, says, yeah. Yeah. She didn't, and she tried to send. They sued her for like six thousand pounds or dollars or whatever it was, and she lost. And I get the whole idea of counterfeits and counterfeiting and bootleggers. Now, counterfeits and bootlegging are two different things. But come on, it's like hitting a sledgehammer on an ant. At the same time, Clapton did his anti-vaccine thing, which I don't want to get into too much here. But anyway, I thought it'd be a fun video, and I did this kind of. It was a rant video, and I got. I think it's a, over a hundred thousand views by wow. now, but um, it was just one of those views. It brought people in. Now, am I proud of that? It, it, it was a tongue in cheek thing. And of course I even did later my, I, my top 10, um, you know, I, I do ranking videos too occasionally. And I did my top 10 Eric Clapton um, wanking videos, uh, <laughs> wanking albums. Cause I love his, I love cream albums. I love the stuff he did with John Mayall. I love the Yardbirds. I loved uh, Derek and the Dominoes, his first solo album. I got a, after about 461 Ocean, a few of those. I got a little tired of him, but I love him as an artist. And, you know, that kind of brought people in. And luckily, a lot of them stayed and watched the other things. So I didn't do it purposely to do that. But now, every year now, I have a top 10 wankers of the year at the end of the year. That's kind of my list. And people seem to like it. And really, it, it's, it's for enjoyment. Some people get wrapped up in it and take it way too, too serious. seriously. And you have to, you know, if they're watching it, especially it's different listening on a podcast here, they see my expressions and my little smirk. It's tongue in cheek. You know, people will, will, you know, I get comments. Oh, the wankers, the guy with the glasses and the hat and the beard. It's not, it's not Eric Clapton or, and that's fine too. I take that unless it's mean spirited. I don't really care. So that made it explode even more. Well, one thing I really admire about you and your, and your, your, influence or your effort on youtube is that and you're kind of doing it now you for folks who can't see this you're wearing a t-shirt it's women in vinyl right like it's you're very very quick to promote the community because that's a podcast now i don't even look at it as a competing podcast. it's just another podcast about records that you've championed for it's as long a, as well I this remember. is a, let me just give a little plug of women in vinyl they're an organization that's been around about 
four to five years now. And my friend, the archivist is on the board of it. And um, it supports women getting in the business, whether in pressing plants and retail sales and mastering mm. in marketing, in working literally in pressing plants as a press master or something and get more women in the business. It's a support thing. And you can go to their site, listen to their podcast, buy a t-shirt or something. Um, and they're a great organization. And they actually, uh, end of the year, have a book coming out. Uh, the archivist edited it, and oh. and Jen, the uh, the head or the or- organization, really kind of wrote it with these interviews and uh, features on various women around the world in the vinyl community. I mean, the bigger vinyl sure. world, uh, the, but as jobs, as legitimate jobs, not just us collectors, you know. Yeah, no, but to that end, you know, one thing, not just with that organization and group that you're just, you're just talking about there but even on youtube you're going to link them below in this podcast I, I'm, I'm happy to i'm happy to that's no problem um actually matter of fact i saw a video that a viral video that i had this morning another channel i follow and it was a, a, a woman working in a pressing plant but um all there that you go. it happens what a what a <laughs> it's not a rarity no not at all but no to that end what i was going to say is to make the connection about you're always quick to elevate or promote or just mention other channels, other things within the community. And I think for lack of a better word, it makes you like the connective tissue of the vinyl community. And what I mean by that is that, and I have a theory, you know, when these channels get over a certain size and they kind of shift their priorities and so forth, they kind of forget the little people. But one thing that's always been great about you is that you'll come on the live streams. You will find these videos and the vinyl tag and you'll promote these new channels that help give them air and help really kind of foster the sense of community that I think is one of the things I really enjoy about what we do. What would you say to that? Well, I I try to do that. However, the only thing that I will say is when I do a video, I consciously think that I'm not doing this just for the vinyl community. And I don't uh, take it for granted that everyone's watching even knows what the vinyl quote community is it's not there's no real vinyl community you don't sign up you don't get a membership or a decoder ring or anything it it is i want to reach out to people watching on youtube in general so even when you know some youtubers or some vinyl community people do contests or themes or threads i'll only do them not that i want to take away from another individual and really support them but I'll do them if, if I think they have p- appeal beyond just the vinyl community, like a music lover. If it's about, you know, your favorite live concert records or something, I think that appeals to a bigger audience. So sure. I, I won't direct it to, hey, vinyl community, hey, VC. I don't mind people to do that. And I, I, I don't want to sound snooty even saying that, but I just want it for anyone who watches. Agreed. I don't want to limit it to the secret organization here or club member. <laughs> And some people may, you know, I know there are some people in the quote vinyl community that that t- think it's this precious little flower that you have to have rules and regulations, and that's what you need to do. And if you don't do that, you're really not a member of the vinyl community, which I think is ridiculous. But if that's what you want to do, it's right for your channel, right for what you want, all the power to you. But of course, if I'm making videos, I want you know, as many people to watch. Now, I don't make every video. I make a lot of videos still, and I don't expect everyone to watch every video. In fact, the ones that I love, I did a video a few months ago on to meet the two most interesting artists in the past quarter century, uh, to me, artistically. And they are Beck and Bjork. And mm-hmm. I kind of 
they came around around the same time, give or take a few years, obviously. Bjork was a little earlier with the Sugar Cubes and went on as a solo artist. And I think they're very creative, whether you like every record or not. Sure. And I did on that. And I got some decent amount, but it did, I thought it would be a bigger thing uh, for people to watch. And I, I I took the most time with it. And it wasn't one of my you know bigger ones. A Whack-A-Mole is, runs bigger than that. There's random picks. Or I do a series... Um, which I really love doing called It's the Music Stupid, where I showcase five records just from my collection, various genres, years that I really like. And and some people at, for a while were taking offense, me mentioning the word stupid, but it's taking uh, off from a, when Bill Clinton ran for president. James, James Carville. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the economy stupid. And it's really an internal thing. It's the music stupid. Maslow really talk about the music. It's, I mean, we want good pressings. We want good sound. But after a while, it comes down to if you like that Clash record, if you like that Throbbing Gristle or Beetle record, I mean, yeah, you want a good sound. But at some point, come on, just enjoy the friggin' music. You know, don't wait till that ultimate pressing um, is not is not the way you should enter the hobby. As far as I'm concerned, that's just a personal opinion. Yeah, no, I agree with it. I think. Uh especially I don't want to call it the age of the audiophile, but as the audiophile focus has been more tight or more elevated as people are to what you said, chasing that the best of the best. I mean, teach their own. Everyone has their own motivations or inspirations for collecting records as they do. Well, there's a little bit about that, you know, and I know it's a cliche, but the same 50 records are pressed over and over again, you know, dark side of the moon and super tramp and, and steely Dan. when I mean, not steely Dan hasn't impressed a lot, but you know, the, the really good sounding records, all the power to that. I love that. But at some point, you know, check out, there's a lot of great friggin' music out there and there's a lot of good music coming out now. I'm an old guy and I, I don't keep up with every new artist or genre, but I buy a lot of new records and new, and I'd rather buy five new records than another $150 UHQR or one step record. I'd rather buy five new records of new artists because, because I already have those legacy, uh, you know, albums are ready. I don't need a, a box version of it. Sure. So through your, through your videos and through your activities, be it joining other people's live streams, or you've even hosted your own live stream. I remember you talked to Ingroove, Mike Esposito and, and stuff like that. Do you feel a responsibility to do some homework to, I mean, a lot of it for you is like, you've lived it, right? Like you even talked about your experience in San Francisco and coming into a really provocative and very interesting time in, in, in popular music, right? But when you're making videos or you're joining live streams, what do you feel there's a responsibility to help be inclusive, to bring, like you said, to have a wider appeal than just the quote-unquote vinyl community? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel a responsibility. I, I do what I and, – and I get snarky, and I even occasionally talk about politics. It explodes some people's heads. And I get that and they can move on. In fact, when I do that, I try to say at the beginning, hey, I'm going to talk about politics. Skip this video because people say, I came here for the music. I don't want to talk about la di da di da di da All the power to you. I grew up in a time, a uh, tumultuous time too. We're in that time right now, as a matter of fact, in so many ways. And I think music is a big part of it, whether it's folk music, protect music, punk music, uh, hip hop, you know, I'm not a big hip hop, but I, I know the realities of music uh, uh, on a cause, whatever the cause is. Um, I don't feel responsibility. I do want to get it right, but I'm not one of those slick channels that does the great, you know, high production value, camera, yeah, high sure. production value. And I, I respect those, but 
to me, it's about my 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 personal story of this music of these records. I do want to get it right, and when I get it wrong, I, I you know I try to you know, fix it. And sometimes I get a little dyslexic or I flip a date around. And I do, you know, I, I'll look up if I'm doing a feature on an artist, I'll do a quick kind of look up to refresher to see, make sure I got my dates right sure. when this album came out. I don't get in details of the, you know, John Lennon was born on the, on the bombing of uh, 913 Liverpool in 1940. Yeah. Uh, but I want to get that right. And if I get it wrong, people literally, you know, as you know, every, right away, someone's going to comment. And, and I get, and I appreciate that. But sure. sometimes there's 10, 15 people commenting because they don't look at the uh, previous comments that or someone already did. And that's fine too. I don't, I don't take that personally. It's when they get all wanker on you and they, um, <laughs> but I don't feel, I don't try to feel this responsibility that I, that I owe anyone anything. I appreciate my audience. I try to be there. I don't respond to every, I mean, Early on, I've been criticized that I didn't answer all everyone's comments. But when people say good work, you know, you want to give them a heart. But at some point, what do you say? I try to always answer if someone asks a specific question, Mm. you know, like, do you know if they did another album by or or something very specific? That's a question. Um, I try to. But what happens is in some videos, you get a lot of responses. Then I'm working on something else by then. And then I have my my work work. It and of course I oh I I really love that people are watching and uh, you know the videos but I don't always get back to everyone you know I'm surprised I mean I love more people to subscribe and I'm surprised when you look at the analytics I think there's my forty percent of my viewers are subscribers sixty percent are not subscribers so you're looking really at come on push convert. that subscribe button right now. Go down to Mazzy's music and push that subscribe button. I don't say that every time, though, either. So I'm no. not one of those with the logo subscribe graphic. I know you do. I know. And I'm not against that. No, I just I don't. Yeah. It's not part of my, maybe it's my brand, my image. I, you know, also I click the box. You know, I, I am monetized, but I click the box so there's no, no spots, no commercials in the middle of my videos. Now I'll make 25, 30% less money for that because of that. But I don't like, commercials every three or five minutes whatever it is and all the power to other people to do that i'm not gonna you know dump on someone else but to me that works for me yeah it makes sense and, and it's to me to speak to my end on that i just throw in that graphic because i don't like speaking about it because i don't you know t- to an extent I, I want i want i want the video to be what it is what i want to talk about and i of course i want more subscribers conversion all that stuff but i'm not there and, I'm not, and, i don't i don't want to right and no, but anyone doesn't have to defend themselves for it. It's just what yeah. I want. And I, I get that. I mean, some of the greatest channels I like have things like that. And it, it doesn't deter me. I don't, you know, if someone does a Patreon, I don't really care. I don't like diss them. But of course, when you grew up in the VC, if, if someone mentions they went to Patreon, they get like all hell breaks. Yeah, I'm yeah. not Patreon. I don't do any of that. And, you know, and some people I know, some good friends of mine have done things like that. And, you know, they get like, oh, my God, you're monetizing. Give me a break. YouTube's going to monetize you anyway. You might as well. You know, we're giving them content that they're making money on. Google's making money on all of us, whether you monetize or not. So if you can get a little more so to pay pay for some records or something, you know, or feed your cat, you know, you need to do that. (laughs) Control your destiny. Yeah, I believe. Um, Last thing before we go off of YouTube is so recently through YouTube, if I'm not mistaken, tell me if I have this wrong. 
you connected with a viewer who asked you to help him sell or liquidate his record collection. I know you affectionately are calling it the Dizzy Collection, and there's a reason for that, but we'll move past that. But how has that been? And then also that led you to, I, I believe this is right, sell records at your at a record show for the first time. Is that fair to say? And how was that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Well, let me go back a little bit. About a year and a half ago, maybe it's coming on two years, uh, my friend Coleman, who I've known 50 years this year, we met, My I got my first record store job. We're probably about, It's only, it might even be this month, 50 years ago, exactly, March or April, I got my first job. Warehouse Records, W-H-E-R-E, a California West Coast chain at the time. In San Francisco, I got a job at the record fact at the at the warehouse. And when we got to Christmas time, we needed Christmas help. And this guy Coleman used to come in it. He became a he was like regular. Sure. And we started talking. We got we connected because of the Jefferson Airplane and Psychedelic. And he was really into R and B and soul, was just learning guitar. And he always wanted to start a soul R and B band. And at Christmas time, we were looking for, you know, bring on extra Christmas help. And I suggested Coleman. We hired him. Coleman and I became fast friends. Mm. We were, he actually started a band in San Francisco, Bay Area, called Pride and Joy. They lasted 40 years. They were a party band. They had four great black singers up front. He led, booked the band, the guitar. They had, you know, drums, sax, bass, the whole great R&B, stacks, Motown covers, weddings bar mitzvahs corporate shows the whole i mean they were big or in, in the bay area big events and um he literally about two years ago got sick right when maybe three years ago now right as covid was hitting he had these headaches and he ended up getting a tumor and some months later he passed away uh, so pretty fast and um i was one of one of his closest friends obviously his closest record friend yeah. he had a massive collection you know and uh after he passed about a month later his sister reached out to me and i knew kind of she would and said you know we what, what are we going to do with this collection and i said i said well you can sell it to stores and here's what you do and I, I you know if you want some help let me know you'll get about this and and then i was talking to my friend coffee dave about it and he goes why don't we buy it he actually said what you know mm. and we came up with a thing we i went to his sister and said well Maybe we could buy it. And I made him an made her an offer. And I said, you think about it. She goes, I don't have to think about it. That sounds great. You know, she didn't think of it. She goes, I know you'll do right. If you can sell some of them, keep what you want. So anyway, after that, we got him. We drove him up here from the Bay Area. And there was about 5,000 plus albums, another 1,000 or 1,500 saying amazing stuff. I, between Dave and I, we kept about 1,500 records for our own collection. And then we sold some. I had in the garage people coming up here uh, visiting, and we did a online YouTube sale, and we sold it. We got our money back. We made maybe a couple grand profit, but we kept record. We didn't do it for the profit. Sure. We just, and and I, we put these cards in every a picture of Coleman and a little bio how I knew Coleman. Nice that went in every record that went out. And it was I'm not a I'm not a re, really a seller or a flipper usually and stuff. And anyway. This is a long story to your question, I know, but cut to a few months ago or right before Christmas, this guy reached, calls me and I've been getting these, you know, you get robo calls and I don't usually answer if I don't recognize. And I picked it up and the guy goes, Mazzy, I love your videos. And, you know, he kind of greased the wheels and said, I love what you do. I have this record collection I want to kind of see about getting rid of. And I, I stopped him because I liked what you do with Coleman. And I said, I'm not a flipper. I don't buy collections, but I could 
give you recommendation. I know people here, he goes, I don't want to go to the stores because they give you 10 to 20 cents on the dollar. And they, you know, and, and he goes, I understand that, but, and I don't, it's not really about the money, but I like what you did. Can you come and see me? And I, so finally, after the holidays, I went to see him. He's 30 minutes south of me. And he has like eight to 10,000 records in boxes. He has like 100 framed Fillmore Avalon posters. He's got all this memorabilia. I mean, it was and all nothing in any kind of order or genre. And I we had a talk for a couple hours. And I said, well, and this is, I said, I, I don't buy collections. He goes, you know, I don't need to, but maybe you could sell a few or you could... I said, I asked, here's what I asked him. I said, are you emotionally attached to these records? He goes, not at all. Are you doing it for the money? Not at all. I got my own, my house. I don't. Yeah. What was, his mo- what was his motivation? To well, sell? he that. says, I haven't played a record. I don't even have a record player anymore. I haven't played a record in 25 years. He was going in the seventies and eighties, just bought when records or not the seventies and eighties, I guess the eighties and nineties when records were cheap, you know, in the two, early two thousand up till 95, I think he said. He lived in the Bay Area then. He bought records and just would he buy multi copies. There was like 10, 12 copies of Rolling Stone's Some Girl, half with the Lucy cover, half yeah, without. Him, yeah. He had some really rare stuff, some funky, scratched up stuff. And I said, Well, we, we had a talk and I said, I'll I'll let's try something. And he had these OJCs, original jazz classics, three hundred and forty of them, half more than half of them sealed, all in shrink. And we did the first auction and we sold out and we made, you know, and he said to me, he goes, you know, I gave him his money. We did a split and, and he said, you know, I just love, that was the most enjoyment better than any sports events. He likes seeing his collection sold. It's an entertainment thing for him. And, you know, sure. He got, he got more money than he would even, even splitting it naturally that way. But it wasn't about that. So every week, a week and a half, I, we meet for lunch. It's like a mafia meetup at the strip mall kind of sandwich pizza place. And I get another, some box of records. We've Paper done, bag of money. We're, <laughs> we're doing the third auction and we're doing them as auctions. The first one was as sales. And that was easier because all the OJCs were basically one label and everyone knew what they were pristine copies. Now, of course, OJCs are being, you know, are like all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but people are in fashion, recognizing yeah. them more and they're going to be reissued some of them. And um, so we sold a lot of records. It's a lot of work doing these sales because packing and shipping. Of course. The record show was nice because people buy it, you take it, you don't have to ship it. But it was fun. It was fun meeting people. And so I had some comments on that video when I talked about the experience. I shot it from the point of view of the seller for a change. And I just showed people and someone said, no, but nobody's buying records. Well, when they were buying, I wasn't filming. Right. Wasn't yeah, filming. yeah, 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 yeah. Not filming so, the transactions. Yeah, exactly. So, but people were great. A few people recognized me from YouTube, but few people really nice. I noticed a lot more young people and women were there at that show in Seattle. Um, it was fun. And we did, you know, we did pretty well. I mean, we, you know, so I'm going to do another auction coming up and we'll probably do these we're, we're planning on doing them once a month as long as he wants to do them uh get some of his stuff the other stuff this the dumper stuff he's selling get, selling off cheap to record stores but um i mean i got some amazing stuff coming through and every time i'm tempted to keep more and more which i'm trying not to do for my collection but it's amazing it's a great collection uh and i and he's not aware of the quality or like, he doesn't know anything about dead wax or versions or he just 
bought copies because he heard of some artist. Sure. That makes sense. Well, before we get off collections, I do have to ask for the folks scoring at home, because you told me when I visited you, how big is your actual collection? Well, my record, I think I have some between six and 7,000 LPs. I have another maybe 4,000 CDs. I have a CD wall. I'm not against compact discs. I went through about a, I had about a 15 to 18 year hiatus. In 95, I had 6,000 albums. And I purged 2,000 of them because CDs were the better thing. And somebody at Amoeba Berkeley came over, who I used to work with, actually, in my record days, and bought 2,000 of the records mm. for $2,500. And I built these shelves. and But I kept the other 4,000, and they were in storage for 18 years during the CD era. And then, of course, around the late, I'd say, 2008, nine, I pulled them out again, my records. And I, I didn't totally stop buying cds it was a special project but i just decided you know i shouldn't have sold those records and i probably since then bought most of them back <laughs> but i had i probably had like you know a pristine led zeppelin rl i bought all these things right when they came when out they so i worked in record stores um maybe not when that game came out but i got early press i bought that album like the week it came out you know mm. So I don't know, but it would have been worth what a thousand dollars now or something, pristine. Yeah, yeah, they go for about that. I think I, I have a, but, a VGVG, and it's like a three hundred dollar record for sure. Yeah, but I don't. It's funny. People say, you know, there's always about value and what's this worth. And I, I, am about two thirds of the way put in putting my collection of discogs, and it's interesting to know for insurance purposes. Uh, yes, very for important. my family, my son, if he, you know, what he does with the records. But I don't really think of, oh, now this value went up and, oh, the value went down. I don't care. I don't buy them because of the value. Yeah, I feel like it, when, when COVID hit, I feel a lot of the speculation part of the hobby really kind of grew, right? Because people were at home, discretionary income, weren't traveling. I know for our house, we were putting our money to paying off our mortgage. But a lot of folks were buying records, buying upgrades and equipment, buying this or the other. So, yeah, I, I feel there's a lot more speculation now than there was four or five years ago pre-COVID. Well, all, the, all that, you know, between MoFi and Acoustic Sounds, that kind of got in. People feel burnt, which it's unfortunate, but if you're going to invest in records to flip for the, that only reason, I don't feel sorry for you. I'm sorry. Well, you, you know? hit on well, you hit on something I want to go for the next topic, and that's, you know, our collections and what we do with them toward the end of our life or when we're ready to move off of them, that sort of thing. And you had mentioned your son and, and you'd mentioned this when I visited you about, you know, you're, you know, you have like a ex escape plan for a lot of your collection. You've, you've talked with the archivist about, Hey, <laughs> something happens to me, grab those OJCs, all that kind of stuff. No, so, grab the M music matters, jazz, right? Music matters. I'm sorry. Music matters. She's got a key to my house. Uh, you know, she lived here for three years between, you know, during COVID stuff and that she worked for a, a major label. And now she and her boyfriend moved south a little ways. But she's a big music collector and helped me get into Discogs. And like I said, Mazzy, you got to put your things into it. I applaud her for doing that. Um, and she she has like the keys to my collection in a way. My son, Joseph, loves music, but he's not really into records. He doesn't have the space and the time and the, you know, I mean, obviously he gets first grab at it. But maybe I would have the archivist help guide to either sell it to do something you know i don't know if they have the chance to do something like i did you'd have to have the unless you have a youtube channel with some audience to do it that way 
mm-hmm. I, um, or to give some away or, you know, there's some stuff, very valuable stuff. That's not so valuable, like everybody's collection, but, um, you know, that, that's it. I mean, he gets the option, first option, first refusal in a way. And, and if the archivist helped and did it, he would get any, uh, monies from the sale of it. And, uh, I would have her take a, a cut or percentage or something. And I've kind of thought about that. I got to write it down. I know. It's well, I was going to say, have you guys had like a formal, cause like, I know when I talked no, to my mother about no. like wills and stuff, it's just kind of like, not of somebody that. Knows. I mean, not on that, you know, um, and I should very, you know, I know people put it off on, which is the worst thing in the world, you know? Um, so, but my family knows that the archivist would be a good person, a good trustworthy person, at least to talk to. I mean, physically, she's not going to box up everything and do it, but she could kind of act as a producer and figure out what to do. So I'm not, God, I don't. I'm not going anywhere yet. I hope. Well, hopefully, hopefully, you got another twenty or thirty left in you, and that's well, knock, knock on wood. <laughs> but all in, you know, the reason I brought that up is when we visited you, you had kind of mentioned that. It, it kind of got me. I internalized that because, for me, my son, I really hoped he would get into team sports because I I love sports growing up, and it'd be something for us to bond over. And hey, let's go to the game, all that stuff. Didn't happen that way. He hated team sports. He loathed them. He hated me coaching them and all that stuff, some resentment, et cetera. So I thought, and maybe this isn't your case with Joseph, but you know, obviously you're very passionate about music, the history that, you know, storytelling, all the stuff that you demonstrate on your YouTube channel. But the impression I got right or wrong was maybe Joseph doesn't share that same kind of passion. He's probably passionate about other things, graphic design and, and, and video games you would kind of mention. but how, how, as a father, how does that make you feel? Don't you, do you wish that he had some of that kind of passion that you guys could um, connect with or? I- I, you know, here's what I feel about that. No, sure. I'd love him to be in the music. I mean, he's in the music and, and he got exposed to, I used to, when I was in the car playing CDs, I would be like, um, <laughs> I would always play CDs for him. And I, I remember early on, like playing like Tom Waits. And so early on when he was I don't know, six, seven, eight, whatever it was, he was started doing the piano has been drinking. He got the six, seven year old doing the like Tom Waits voice. Cause he thought that was hysterical. Uh-huh. I think the first huge album we connected with when he was 10 was Radiohead kid. A I remember playing that in the car and like, I love that Radiohead record. <coughs> Excuse me. And he just loved, we fell in love with that record. He got into Radiohead. Of course, later, you know, Radiohead with guitar the guitar game with uh, creep and all that stuff was, oh, was rock happening. star, rock band. Yeah. Yeah. Rock, whatever it's called. Yeah. Um, but I would play like, who's that Bob Dylan? Who's that, you know, Johnny cash. Who's that Dean Martin? He loved Dean Martin. Yeah. He, I, and I'd play, you know, punk, I'd play everything, Beatles and stuff. And then we got to have this running joke, like who wrote that? Whenever I'd say who wrote that song, whoever did it, it would always be Bob Dylan happened to write it. Just like Jimmy, all on the watchtower. Who wrote sure. that? And so he got to know. So he's aware of all that kind of music. Somebody got into. I remember the two bands right away that he couldn't get into when I was playing was Talking Heads and the Smiths. I think he likes one now. I think he likes the Talking Heads now, but not. The, I can't remember which one. Sure. But you know, I don't mind him not like being it because I love when someone has a passion, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be music. I mean, my thing is music. His is into animation, into. Um, illustration into um you know art the art world commercial art world in a way um graphic novels things like that and he's kind of freelancing he's trying to get a full-time gig in it um 
with an animation house maybe of storyboarding and stuff uh and he's really good at it but it's you know getting the right connection and all that kind of stuff um so i don't care i just like that he's passionate about something and he was passionate about that when he was very young and luckily he went to a school in san francisco public school called soda school of the arts it's like fame you know in the movie fame it's a public school but it is you have to audition to get in so in mm -hmm. drama music uh filmmaking he was in the filmmaking division but doing animation uh theater orchestra you know all the you know set design and so every morning you have your math science history in the afternoon you have your major and, and that was the best thing for him because he you know you do all your stuff in the morning and when you're sleepy in the afternoon, you don't want to study. You're doing the coolest thing you're into. Sure. And so he didn't cut class. He was, you know, a good student. He, he loved it. And he learned all these programs, computer programs and, and just drawing things. He would take, he would go to these figure drawing classes on the weekends when he was young, nude drawings. And, you know, we, I don't, you know, which was great. You know, he was 16, 17. Um, and he just had a passion for that. And so I, you know, totally, support that you know so it, him not being into the records i did buy at record store day a couple years ago that gorillas box that's, uh -huh. that came out kind of for him but it's sitting here sealed because he doesn't have a record player but at oh. some point you know if he wants it because the gorillas if you know you know the whole animation thing of course yes the guy from blur and what's his name D damon damon Albarn. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly so and i like them too we used to listen to those uh, the first few cds when they first came out no, I think that's important because I was talking about exposing your son to like and quizzing him, right? Like my, I would do that with my son. I still do it just kind of like to make sure that I'm passing down some of this tribal knowledge of, you know, one, having relatively good taste in music, but two, subject matter expertise, right? Um, all that said, have you guys ever gone to concerts together? Have you ever had the live music experience together? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We went um, we went to a handful of concerts. What's great about the Fillmore in San Francisco is all ages. And you can walk around. So I think one of the first ones went to see and um, was They Might Be Giants. We both got into They Might Be Giants. And, you know, that's a kid-friendly band as yeah. well as adults like. And I was into They Might I, Like, to me, I, I like their early stuff, independent stuff, but I like Flood. And um, I went their first major label with Electra. We had to see them at the Fillmore. And my, I had a friend um, who, I don't know if you ever heard of Leo Laporte, he has um, he has a thing called Tech TV. It's huge online, like podcasts, simulcasts, you know. And he's a tech guy, a radio show. We used to we studied theater together, acting together in the late eighties. And I've known him for a year. I haven't seen him in a long time. And uh, at their studio used to be a block from my office in San Francisco. And they may, they might be giants did an in store or a, a interview there cool. with you know like twelve people in the audience and he invited Joe and I so we saw him that day and that night at the Fillmore so that was a great show we went to see the B fifty twos together we went to see the Eels to, he loves he led the Eels together we went to a bunch of shows at the Fillmore um, Ringo Starr All Stars him and I went to see Paul McCartney so he's he's seen two of the Beatles mm. which you know it's for, at his age that's kind of really great you know he's 32 now so um and does yeah. it does it charge you up because i know like when i took my son to like metallica is one of my favorite bands and i got to take him to that first metallica show and seeing him enthusiastic about it like it, it kind of stirred like a different set of emotions because i really felt we were connecting but also i was like 
proud that you know like we could share that experience have you ever one of those shows you took joe to did you ever feel any of that yeah it was it was just it was just fun hanging out it was fun sharing one of my passions with him and he got into it so it wasn't like oh you dragged me into a rock and roll exactly that's the worst thing you want right yeah Awesome. Well, cool. Well, I appreciate you sharing that, Mazzy. Um, we're, we're at the, the end of the presentation. We're going to go lightning round. So these are just fun questions, just kind of like quick fire. And if you want to elaborate on them, feel free. There's no guardrails here. But um, one thing I wanted to ask you is when you're record shopping in the wild, do you still, with, with such a large collection, which such a, a long life of collecting records, do you ever still get the thrill of finding a record in, in, in the wild and going like, holy shit? Um, occasionally, not often. And I don't have grails I'm looking for. I don't keep a list of things I'm looking for. Um, I have a sense. I mean, I obviously have in Discogs or some of my collection on Discogs. I can look it up because I know what I have. Sometimes I may not know the exact pressing off the top of my head or if I have a stereo mono, which I don't always, you know, the multiple copy things I used to do, I'm really off it now. There are very few exceptions. Although, even though I said I don't like the UHQRs, I did buy and enjoy the two uh, Bob Marley ones that, that they put out. I love those. I don't, I don't give a shit about the boxes, but I love uh, the records and recordings. Did I need them? Probably not. But I realized that though I've heard some Marley albums back in the 90s, and I bought a lot of them back. But just coincidentally, those are the two I didn't have. So I figured, oh, might as well get these two because it's probably the best I'm going to get sure. You know, sure. uh, right now. Um, so, no, I mean, I like going to record stores. I like picking up things. and. Lately, between the Dizzy collection, the Coleman collection, I'm getting labels now. Not a lot, but several labels sending me um, some records to review and promo. And, you know, it's funny. There, there's been a little discussion. Some people say, oh, you're, you're selling out. You're getting free records. Well, historically, historically, reviewers, record store shop employees, owners, radio people got promo records. That's why those friggin' promo stickers you see on labels are – those were free records to someone and it doesn't mean i have to do a review and like them all that's not is that payola that's bullshit about that that is a part of the business i mean you know we are now whether we like it or not we don't want to call it i am an influencer because i have you know every time i do even my whack-a-moles or my or my five you know it's the music music. stupid Mm -hmm. It could be a 40-year-old, 60-year-old record. Someone will say, oh, my God, i got to check that out. And they'll mention I went to buy it. And that's not selling some new artist and making money. And if, if I like a new thing, I just did a um, – I got a uh, – from Kraft, the 10LP box by Wattstack. I had a freaking great time over the last several weeks listening to it. And I spent on last Saturday an entire seven-hour period listening to it straight wow. through for the concert experience. And I freaking loved it. You know, and I talked, excuse me, talked about that. That makes sense. Um, cool. So next question I have for you in this lightning round is, you know, I don't know if you heard this, but Jamie Lee Curtis recently came out and said that, you know, for, for older people, and I can appreciate this because I, you know, it can feel laborious sometimes going to a concert, especially midweek, right? So she had an idea of, you know, why, why don't some of the bigger artists do matinees? It's an interesting idea. Okay. What do you think about that? I get that. I still go see a lot of live music. I mean, not as much as I did before uh, COVID, but I do see, you know, mostly clubs. I don't go to a lot of big shows because I've seen all what I call it, the legacy acts. So you go to clubs and you're right, you know, your main act goes on at 10 or 11 o'clock or something. And when you're an old guy, you know, but I, 
I manage, you know, um, I get that, but that, you know, someone will say, well, don't people work during the day? You know, I guess a weekend things, you know, well, I think, and- I think her comparison was like theater, right? Like she, you know, she said there's a matinee show and then there's an evening show, right? So you well, have these good idea. Do a Wednesday and weekend matinees. I mean, you know, I remember going to Days on the Green. Bill Graham used to put out at Open Coliseum, the baseball uh, place where the A's played. All through the mid-70s, you know, they would have three huge acts. Like I, one was I saw Fleetwood Mac, the Eagles, and Peter Frampton. On, on the same one. bill? Wow. Yeah. same. And there was like probably two other maybe smaller acts early. And it was a whole day. It was a day thing. It probably went into maybe eight o'clock at night. I can't remember when it ended. Um, and it was all day. And that's when I was in the record business. So I'd see, I saw Led Zeppelin that way. My two Led, my, all my Led Zeppelin shows, ironically, I did uh, Kizar Pavilion, I guess, in 73. And in 70, what, seven or eight, their last two shows in America at the Old Coliseum, Days on the Green, day shows, Led Zeppelin during the day. So uh, those were summer things they'd have in the Bay Area. And, I'm, you know, there's a lot of summer festivals here. The Woodlawn, Woodland Park Zoo has these, you know, summer festivals with bands playing and the families can come at the zoo. And I think I saw Echo and the Bunny Man and Violent Femmes a couple of years ago at one of those. And there's a few things like that. So it, it happens around in different cities. Obviously, you're luckier if you live in a, a metropolitan area where these well, things happen. Let's think about Chicago. More. Well, even the festival life, right? Like there's, there's right, some bands right. like Lollapalooza 10 years ago. I saw the cars at 2 p.m. Loved it. Well, that would be an interesting thing for some clubs to have like weekly matinees if the bands are available. If they, you know, half the time the bands don't friggin' want to wake up and play at <laughs> two o'clock or noon or something. Right. No, that's true. No, I thought it was a very interesting idea. So I'll throw it yeah. at you. All right. Last one I got for you, Mazzy. So we're, we're kind of in a very fruitful time in record collecting in that there's such a demand that. You know, you've got new pressing plants finally getting opened up. You've got uh, younger people coming into it, all those sorts of things. Do you think that this, quote unquote, bubble will burst at some point? Or do you think it'll go the way like it did before and that there will be another, you know, streaming is there and streaming is probably the, the, the giant, especially for the younger generation, the giant way to consume music. Do you think there will be some new technology that does it all over again and puts records on the back burner? Not in the same thing. I think, I mean, ultimately, you know, streaming is the easiest for most people. I have issues, you know, I, I get the concept, you know, most people don't care about the fidelity. And of course, there are high, there is high, there are high res places that do, that do it better than others. Most people really don't care about fidelity. Most musicians, it seems, don't have high end audiophile systems. You know, I like listening to music in my car or on my iPhone, you know, occasionally too. And I have no problem with that. Um, I think the record industry will, um, I think it's leveled off a little bit, but it'll, it, it keeps increasing. It'll increase. I think it's hard to judge during the uh, FOMO time or during the, uh, you know, lockdown time. That was an aberration, how it exploded. An outlier, you know, sure. Everything happened. But I think it's great. I think things should be in print. Again, it's a, you know, vinyl is a small, physical is a small percentage. Most people um, want to do that, but I like to support the artists in that way. I think personally, I think streaming is too cheap. I know people hate it because they spend, you know, $12 on Netflix and $12 on YouTube and this, that, and all it adds up. It does. But for what, you know, the music is worth, I think, you know, people have no value. Now, should music have a value? You know, there's a whole philosophy. Oh, the music should be mine. I grew up with the Beatles. How can Paul McCartney charge me so much? I think it's 
bunch of bollocks. Um, <laughs> you know, he created some wonderful things. His family deserves it. And, you know, it doesn't matter how much he got, you know, artists should get what they can. Now, then we get into the whole ticketing, ticket drawn thing or ticket mastered. That's all. That's another issue. I get the people being pissed off there, but I think that, I think it's going to be consistent. It's going to, it's leveled out. Records will be available faster and, um, you know, somewhat, but, um, we'll see. I like that people can have things in print. They don't have to rush to buy it this weekend if they're not ready financially or in the mood. So I like that, you know, like all the old days, you go to record store, you didn't have to buy Led Zeppelin two today. You can buy it next year or six months from now. I agree. Keep it in print if they can. Love it. Well, Mazzy, that's all I got. I appreciate you, one, carving out the time. Appreciate you, obviously, hosting my family and I when we visited you two weeks ago. But um, really enjoyed the chat. I obviously have enjoyed your content for years. Enjoyed getting to know you now that I've started making videos. That's one of the, the great things about coming over to being on this side of the YouTube experience is you actually can connect directly with folks. And I feel like, and maybe it's always been this way, but at least my experience, I feel like there's been more of the in-person meetups, which I think are really fantastic. I love it. Yeah, I, I enjoy it. I, I get people coming up here for this uh, Seattle uh, X Music Expo, what it's called, the uh, audio fest. It's more gear. And uh, like a handful of people are coming up here in Seattle. And- I hope you're charging them rent because, you know, I, I feel bad because Tim, Tim got croissants on his. I, did, you, I think you offered us beverages, but then Tim was offered croissants. So I, I see next level of starting charging these visitors rent if you can. Yeah. You know, bed and breakfast. Absolutely. Get those croissants and charge them for it. Love it. All right. Exactly. Well, Mazzy, thank you for your time, sir. Hope we can do this again soon. It's been a pleasure. Mazzy loves you. All right, man. Talk to you. Take care. You've been listening to the Vinyl Community Podcast. As you can see, vinyl is our passion. We cover it all. We cover it all. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Vinyl Community Podcasts and on Twitter at VC Pods. See you next time on the Vinyl Community Podcasts.